Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. The television series Midsummer Murders has been on air since 1997. In a fictional rural setting, each episode of the British crime drama sees an individual harbour dark secrets as part of the ongoing whodunit murder mystery. In a curious twist of life-imitating art, the picturesque village of Phoenix Pelham in Hertfordshire became an unwitting backdrop for a real-life murder mystery in 2004. An elderly man had been found dead on the front doorstep of his Grade 2 listed cottage. News outlets dispatched reporters to Phoenix Pelham, and the media began to draw parallels between the murder and the fictional television series. As time passed and the crime went unsolved, life in Phoenix Pelham slowly returned to normal. However, sometime later, a jailhouse confession would thrust the village back into the spotlight. This is a place where people move to to escape inner city crime and live out their rural dream. But it was a tranquil dream that ended when Mr. Workman was shot. Welcome to Season 8, Episode 23 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. In the heart of Hertfordshire lies the idyllic village of Phoenix Pelham, a place that seems suspended in time. It's surrounded by rolling fields, and at its centre the imposing St Mary the Virgin Church stands taller than any other building. 
The village has a pub and a primary school, both serving as anchors for the close-knit community. Dotted throughout the village is a collection of historic cottages, some of which date back centuries. Among them is Cock House, a Grade two listed cottage along the causeway. Adding to its distinctive charm, a weather vane in the silhouette of a cockerel sits on the roof. For 27 years, Cock House had one owner, retired Lieutenant Colonel Robert Riley Workman, who had purchased the property in 1977. Riley, as he was commonly known, had served in the army with distinction as part of the Royal Green Jackets Infantry Regiment. Despite his military history, his demeanour was unassuming. Reverend Robert Noakes, the vicar at St Mary's Parish Church, described Riley as a very modest man. Reverend Noakes recalled, You could not get anyone less like the archetypal image of a former military man. Well, gentleman is the word. Gentle is the, is the key word. Um, I was saying to somebody just now that if, um, if your image of a retired colonel is a kind of crusty old boy, he was the absolute opposite of that. Riley Workman was born in 1920, and following his graduation from Oxford, he joined the army. He served in the Far East during the Second World War and later as a secretary and confidential assistant to Field Marshal Sir William Slim. Riley had been stationed in Canada, Nigeria, Germany and Cyprus, and had even been awarded the Burma Star. Since moving to the village, he made regular trips to the Brewery Tap public house for a cigar and his favourite meal of fish and chips. Occasionally, he'd enjoy a glass of whiskey before heading home. Riley Workman was the only member of his family still residing in the United Kingdom. While Riley's brother Cecil, his niece Susan and his nephew Kenneth had settled in Perth, Australia, he had found company with the locals. Fifteen years had passed since the 83-year-old had last seen his brother. Thoughts of travelling around the world crossed his mind, but the prospect of the long journey troubled Riley, especially because of his age. Beyond his military career, he had worked as an antiques dealer. His cottage was furnished with his most treasured possessions. A particular favourite was his valuable silverware collection. In 2004, Riley was living alone. He lost his wife Joanna the previous year and his stepdaughter Anna the year before that. Riley and Joanna had travelled extensively during their marriage, but the couple's lifestyle changed in 1995 when Joanna underwent spinal surgery. The procedure went badly wrong, leaving Joanna paralysed from the waist down. In Joanna's last years, Riley was a dedicated carer as well as a husband. The eventual passing of the love of his life deeply affected him. Later addressing the media, Riley's neighbour Edward Davidson said, He adored her with all his heart. His devotion never wavered despite tribulations that would have broken the will and heart of any but the finest of men. He was a truly saintly man. 
Sometimes I would say to him, Riley, you are a saint. He would throw up his hands in rejection of such a compliment. In his early 80s and grieved by his wife's death, Riley's health had declined and his outings were infrequent. He was also dealing with arthritis and Riley was never seen without a walking stick. His situation got to the stage where he employed a carer who visited him multiple times a day. Although Riley's health wasn't as good as it once was, he found comfort in life's simple pleasures. Reading was his ultimate pastime, often revisiting the pages of War and Peace and J.R.R. Tolkien's novels at least once a year. On the night of January 7th, 2004, the village was unusually quiet. That was until around 8.15, when the silence was suddenly broken by the sound of a loud blast. The resonating boom echoed throughout the village, catching the attention of locals. While it initially startled them, the sound dissipated as quickly as it came. Living around farmland, such disruptions or strange noises were not uncommon. In an area where many farmers owned firearms to safeguard their livestock, the sound didn't immediately raise the alarm. The following day, just before 5am, a phone call reached an emergency operator from a telephone box in the village of Braffin, roughly three miles away from Fernix Pelham. On the line was a man who urgently requested an ambulance be dispatched to Hollyhock Cottage in Fernix Pelham. After 60 seconds, the man abruptly terminated the call. Baffled by the exchange, the 999 operator dispatched paramedics to Fernix Pelham. They couldn't find a property named Hollyhock Cottage, and as they drove up and down the village, they could find no one in need of assistance. They speculated that the 999 call must have been a hoax, so they just drove off. Around the same time that the call came in, a lorry driver named John Wilson was passing a telephone box in Braffin. He noticed a Range Rover parked nearby with its headlights switched on. About 90 minutes later, Josette Swanson, Riley Workman's carer, arrived outside Cock House. She would assist Riley, helping make his breakfast as he prepared for the day ahead. She had been looking after Riley for several years and had even helped care for his wife before she died. He had affectionately referred to her as his semi-detached daughter. Josette locked her car and strolled towards the property. The gate swung open, leading her along a path that wound its way to the lime green front door that was ajar. Josette caught sight of Riley through the gap. He was on the floor still in his pyjamas. She rushed to her employer's side. He didn't appear to be breathing. Josette desperately searched for a pulse, but there wasn't one. She later recalled, I couldn't believe it. 
I felt faint and very sick. I was numb. Josette dialed 999 and waited for the paramedics to arrive. She believed Riley must have suffered a fatal heart attack. Initially, emergency workers suspected the same. As soon as they saw Riley, they knew nothing could be done. Rigor mortis had set in. The commotion had alerted villagers, drawn by the flashing lights of emergency vehicles. A few locals headed to Riley's home, hoping to find out what was happening. They were told of their neighbour's passing. It was not until the undertaker arrived, approximately three hours later, that it was realised Lieutenant Colonel Robert Riley Workman had not died of natural causes. Riley hadn't merely passed away. He had been murdered. As his body was lifted from the frigid ground, a large pool of blood was visible. His cause of death was a single gunshot wound to the chest. A bullet had struck his heart. With Riley's remains en route to the mortuary, his cottage was bordered with crime scene tape. Forensic experts were directed to the village, but their investigation was immediately hampered by the length of time it took to discover a crime had occurred. The ground outside his cottage had been trampled by a multitude of visitors, including police officers, paramedics and concerned neighbours. There were endless footprints in and out of the property, and yet more surrounding the area where Riley's body once lay. Nevertheless, scene of crime officers discerned that there were no signs of a struggle either around the front door or within the cottage itself. Furthermore, nothing appeared to have been stolen, and the property remained untouched, dispelling the possibility of a botched robbery. The scene within the quaint cottage painted a vivid picture for the police. Inside the kitchen, a heavy cast iron frying pan coated in oil rested on the stove. Riley had been in the middle of preparing himself supper when something or someone made him go to the front door. Abandoning his meal, he moved slowly to the front of the house. It was believed that the instant he swung open the door, he was shot. As the search of the cottage was underway, news of Riley Workman's murder rippled through the village. Local Violet Richardson expressed her shock and disbelief to a reporter for the Daily Telegraph, saying, I've lived in the village for the last 35 years, and it's the last thing I would have expected to happen. We all look out for each other, and if you see someone strange, you go and see what's going on. Ron Stringer, the proprietor of the local pub The Brewery Tap, also shared his sentiments with the media. It's just a senseless killing, and we can't understand it. Um, Village-wise, there's a lot of anger and disbelief going around. We're a very close-knit community, and something like this has sent a shockwave right through the village. The morning following the shooting, 
Many people from Phoenix Palum came together at St. Mary's Church. Around 60 locals were in attendance, along with several police officers from the Hertfordshire Constabulary. Before the congregation and seeking solace from God, Reverend Robert Noakes said, We ask that you will comfort us in our grief at the moment of Riley's death and that you will grant wisdom and skill to the police in the investigation and ask that thou will bring whoever is responsible for the crime to penance. We also pray for ourselves in our local community here. Police investigators in the garden of Colonel Workman's cottage. Officers have fitted a temporary door. The original's been removed for examination. Police are looking closely at Mr Workman's private life for any suggestion of a motive. They're also studying parts of a telephone booth in a neighbouring village. It's not beyond the realms of possibility that, in fact, it could be the person who shot Lieutenant Colonel Workman who has made that call. The investigation continued, but the police were perplexed by the lack of motive. Detective Superintendent Richard Mann, who headed the investigation, told the press, There are valuables inside the house, and nothing appears to have been touched. While searching for a potential motive for killing a pensioner, the police began conducting interviews with Riley's loved ones in Australia, as well as people closer to home, including his neighbours. No one had a bad word to say about Riley Workman. No one had any idea as to why he would have been a victim of foul play. One potential line of inquiry was Riley's will. He had no mortgage on his home, and his estate, which included that of his late stepdaughter, was worth hundreds of thousands of pounds. Riley had left behind £962,901 and was to be distributed evenly between his relatives as well as his wife Joanna's loved ones. Some of the money went to his long-term carer, Josette. A portion of the inheritance was the remainder of £400,000 compensation that was awarded to Joanna after she was left paralysed during her operation. Riley had written as his last instruction in his will, I wish to be cremated in a simple casket after a simple and inexpensive funeral as possible, and I would like my ashes to be scattered. His wishes were carried out and his funeral was a modest service. Further speculation suggested that Riley's murder may have stemmed from his days in the Royal Green Jackets but the police found that unlikely since he had left the army almost 40 years ago. Detective Superintendent Mann stated, This really is a terrible, almost unbelievable, shocking crime. It appears to be a deliberate, brutal and callous killing. Whoever is responsible is highly dangerous and must be caught. Investigators theorised that the killer may have been a local due to the weapon being a shotgun. Burnix Pelham is a rural area, and the fields surrounding the village are home to farmers, most of whom owned a firearm. The weapon used in the crime contained an SG-sized shot, 
a heavy load that is normally utilised to target large animals. It contained only nine reasonably large pieces of shot, instead of the hundreds of pieces used in game and pigeon shooting. As Detective Superintendent Mann said, It is not the preferred weapon of professional assassins, nor is it the weapon which people use to commit burglaries or robberies. In an effort to trace the murder weapon and the killer, officers asked local people with access to shotguns to hand them over for forensic analysis. Here in Fernix Pelham, it's the brutality of this murder that so upset everyone. For Lieutenant Colonel Workman had many friends and no known enemies, and he lived in a village which until now has been practically crime-free. As police continue their search, in the village, rural tranquility has been replaced by doubt. Who would want to kill such a man, and could the killer really still be amongst them? The morning after Riley Workman's murder, an arrest was made. The man in police custody was 24-year-old Christopher Nuds. Nuds was an openly gay man known locally as the Rat Catcher because he ran a pest control business. He lived in Stocking Pelham with his mother and stepfather, a mile and a half away from Riley's cottage. His father was a gamekeeper, so Nuds had been brought up around shotguns. He had purchased his first full-length shotgun when he started working in pest control and had held a shotgun certificate since he was 13. Christopher Nuds first cropped up in the investigation when his name was mentioned by Josette Swanson, Riley's carer. Josette told the police that Riley had enlisted Nuds' services on three separate occasions, one of which involved the removal of a wasp's nest. As the investigation continued, the police spoke with a local man, Gary Chambers. He explained that he had seen a Range Rover with a unique license plate in the vicinity of Phoenix Pelham at about 9pm the night Riley Workman was killed. The number plate was N5050, although it had been adjusted with the N separated and the 5050 in a font that made it appear as Soho. This corresponded to a number plate on a car owned by Christopher Nuds. Following his arrest, Nuds was brought to the police station to be questioned. Simultaneously, a search of his home in Stocking Pelham was conducted. Ammunition was found, though noticeably absent was the corresponding firearm. Parked in the driveway was his distinctive Range Rover. Inside, the police identified traces of shotgun residue, although this was not uncommon in the area due to the number of farmers who owned firearms. At the police station, Nuds initially said that he had never met Riley Workman. However, when presented with Josette's comments, Nuds admitted that he had worked for Riley as a pest controller in the past. The last time was in November 2003, but Nuds was adamant he hadn't seen Riley since. Nuds was asked where he was on the night of Riley's murder, and he maintained that he was home all evening. 
but when presented with the witness account from Gary Chambers, who said he had seen Nudz's Range Rover in Fernix Pelham that night, Nudz soon changed his story, saying that he had been driving in the area and had stopped to take off his jacket. The police were suspicious of Christopher Nutz, but with no direct evidence against him, he was released later that evening without charge. Upon his release, a reporter for the Sunday Telegraph visited Nudd's home uninvited, finding him outside washing his Range Rover. The reporter asked him about his arrest, and Nudd's laughed, dismissing any suggestion that he was involved in Riley Workman's murder. No, I did not kill the colonel, he said. According to Nudd's, he had no idea why he was arrested, telling the reporter, I knew the old man. I visited his home about three times because he had a problem with wasp nests. He was just a nice old gent. That's all he was. I have no idea who killed him or why. I don't know all that much about him. While the investigation progressed, a crucial piece of the puzzle emerged. The 999 call made before Riley's body was discovered. Voice experts dissected the call, painting a profile of the caller. They estimated him to be over 50, perhaps even over 60, and said that he did not attempt to conceal his accent, which was from rural North Hertfordshire. Armed with this lead, the police descended upon the village of Braffin, where they dismantled the telephone box used to make the call. Detective Superintendent Richard Mann appealed to the mysterious caller, emphasising the importance of his cooperation. We need to know who this person was, if only to rule them out of our inquiries. The prevailing theory suggested the caller was either Riley Workman's killer or someone with vital information about the murder. Investigators considered the possibility that somebody had seen Riley dead on his doorstep and made the call anonymously. By January 13th, the caller had yet to step forward. Two days later, the decision was made to release a recording of the call. Hello, caller. Hello. Hello. The ambulance service. What's the address you want the ambulance to come to? Ambulance. It's Holly Hart Cottage. Holly. Holly Hart Cottage. Can you spell it for me? H O L L Y. Yeah. C O C K. And what road is it on? It's the causeway. The causeway. Yes. In what town? That's Phoenix Pelham. One peculiar detail was the caller referring to Cock House. Hollyhock Cottage, 
While Riley's cottage was known as Cock House locally, his wife Joanna had often called it Hollyhock Cottage. She wasn't a fan of the original name, and while it was changed to Hollyhock Cottage in the phone book, the new name never caught on. Although the caller misspelt the name Hollyhock, using H-O-L-L-Y-C-O-C-K, he knew to correctly pronounce the name of the village saying Phoenix. Outsiders often refer to the area using the French pronunciation of Ferno. When the caller was asked how to spell Phoenix, he spelt it F-U-R-N-E-A-U-X. An A is rarely used locally, but does feature on a sign at the entrance of the village. It was evident to the police that the caller was a local man, or at least somebody very familiar with the area. A week had passed since Riley Workman's murder, and the police found themselves grappling with a lack of motive. The former lieutenant colonel was a well-liked man in his winter years who generally kept to himself. A theory began to take shape. Perhaps Riley Workman's killer had actually intended to target Timothy Workman, a judge presiding at Bow Street Magistrates Court in London where several suspected terrorists had appeared. The police looked into this possibility, but they couldn't rule it out or positively affirm it. To address these mounting concerns, the police held a community meeting at the village hall on January 16th. More than 200 villagers attended, where they were provided with personal safety alarms as a measure of reassurance. Chief Superintendent Andy Wright acknowledged the delicate balance between addressing fears and maintaining community morale. The purpose of the meeting was twofold, to offer reassurance to the public and release the 999 call. The recording was played aloud twice, but not a single person could identify the man on the other end of the line. The unsettling thought that Riley's killer might be among them hung heavy in the air. This was something that the police also considered as they scanned the crowd trying to see if anybody in particular stood out. However, all they observed was grief and concern. Hopefully somebody in that recognised the voice. He's quite stumbled, so it's quite hard to notice. If he didn't have nothing to do with it, he's got nothing to hide, so he should come forward. Could have pulled a pint for him or served him his dinner and we just don't know, do you, really? It's quite scary. Following the meeting, the 999 call was uploaded online. Within less than 24 hours, it had been heard over 5,000 times, but nobody could put a name to the voice. The police continued searching for a motive, and towards the end of the month they released three photographs of Robert Riley Workman as a young man. They considered the possibility that the motivation may have been linked to something from his past. Detective Superintendent Mann provided the reason why the images of Riley were released. It may be that someone recognises him from those photographs, 
just in case there is some distant dark secret that may shed some light on a possible motive we are not aware of at the moment. The images were even featured on the BBC programme Crime Watch. Yet despite these efforts, no one had a single disparaging word to say about the mild-mannered pensioner. Fernix Pelham was inundated with reporters. Some of them couldn't help but draw parallels between the ongoing investigation and the famous TV series Midsummer Murders. Detective Superintendent Mann addressed these suggestions with a hint of discomfort, saying, It does make me cringe, rather. The comparisons people make with Midsummer Murders and Agatha Christie. The days gradually merged into weeks, and the investigation seemed to be at a standstill. Detectives still hadn't figured out a motive for the killing, nor had they found a likely suspect. Toward the end of February, Riley Workman's nephew Kenneth travelled from Australia to Hertfordshire. During a press conference, Kenneth asked for answers. When you live on the other side of the world, the telephone call one dreads receiving is when you are contacted to be advised of the loss of a loved one. When we learned of the terrible truth of my uncle's death, it became a very difficult time for all of us and for so many of his wonderful friends in trying to understand why, what purpose was there and who could do such a thing and be able to live with themselves. Kenneth revealed that in the months leading up to his uncle's death, Riley began to heal after losing his wife. Kenneth concluded his statement with a plea for information. In March, a new tactic was employed to identify the mysterious caller. They had voice experts analyse the tape and compare it with the voices of people living in the area. While doing so, they encountered a man in his 60s who sounded remarkably similar to the 999 caller. The unidentified man was arrested on March 18th, and while he denied he made the call, he refused to provide a tape sample of his voice. That evening, he was released on bail pending further inquiries. A police source commented, it is now a case of establishing whether this person is being difficult or whether they have something to hide. Ultimately, the man was ruled out of police inquiries. People in this close-knit community are trying to put the terrible events of last January behind them. But six months on, there is a sense of unease that the colonel's killer could still be living in their midst. By June, it had been six months since Riley Workman was shot dead on his doorstep. A £10,000 reward for information was provided. The police also admitted for the first time that they believed the killer held a deep-seated grudge. Detectives had been stumped by the seemingly random nature of the murder and presented the case to a convention of European behavioural profilers. They concluded that Riley's killer was motivated by a long-held grudge against him. During their investigation, 
the police looked into a potential source of animosity between Riley and the family of his late stepdaughter Anna Mitchell, who had passed away in 2002. The police noticed a financial discrepancy that added fuel to the fire. It was discovered that while Riley's wife Joanna had received £400,000 in compensation after being left paralysed, Riley had not allocated these funds for full-time care, but instead used them for part-time remedial assistance. Reportedly, this had angered Anna and the rest of the family. As newspaper articles were published referring to this potential development, a concerned relative reached out to the independent newspaper, vehemently denying any familial dispute. They maintained... For a long time, he and Joanna had barely any contact with us. They only lived up the road, but we always admired the way Riley looked after her. Investigators continued to probe the theory that Riley's murder was orchestrated by someone nursing a long-standing grudge. In August 2004, the police travelled across the Atlantic to the United States. Decades prior during the 1970s, Riley and Joanna had relocated to New England, employed as housekeepers for the prominent Cabot and Saltonstall families. According to Dudley Willis, the son-in-law of Richard Saltonstall, who employed Riley and Joanna, the police were interested in a potential sexual motive for the murder. Revealing that officers visited him and asked if Riley was a paedophile, Dudley Willis said, They believe that could have been a motive for the killing. They had photographs of a boy and asked me who he was, but I had no idea. The impact of this revelation was instantaneous. The media seized upon the notion of a sordid secret in Riley Workman's past and rumours and speculation began to spread like wildfire. However, in December, a new line of inquiry emerged. The police now believe that Riley may have lived something of a double life. An officer working on the case said, One of the active lines of inquiry is a strong suggestion that Riley may have been homosexual. Obviously, that must have been extremely difficult for him throughout his military career. During their investigation, detectives had reportedly discovered that during the 1950s and 1960s, Riley frequently visited clubs in London that were patronised by gay men in the military. That said, this wasn't something Riley hid from his friends or family despite the media's persistence to turn his past into a sordid secret. His sister-in-law, Sybil Cowland, commented, It was not an issue. He was a very sociable, nice gentleman, and always treated us well. More time passed, and there were sporadic updates in the case. A neighbour of Riley's provided her thoughts in January 2006. I have two children and at first I was worried about their safety, but not anymore. It's not like the killer is going to come back and shoot someone else. In the village of Phoenix Pelham, the school day ends, life is returning to normal. 
But these children are just yards from the scene of a cold-blooded murder. Some people in the village believe that a man since convicted of another murder may have been responsible. Whatever the truth, it's deeply affected this community. I think that things, you know, time cures and people are going about the business as they were before. And obviously it is at the back of their mind um, in the village. But it would be lovely if it was solved. But it hasn't been and it, the, the trail is going cold, obviously. Cock House, where the tragic incident occurred, found new ownership for a price exceeding £300,000. The new owner carried out extensive renovations. It would be another four years before the investigation was finally blown wide open. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. In 2010, it was announced that an arrest was made in connection with Robert Riley Workman's murder. 
It was Christopher Nutt, the pest controller who had been arrested the day after Riley's murder and was released without charge. By 2010, the then 31-year-old was serving a life sentence for the murder of another man, 21-year-old Fred Moss. The police informed the public that while Nuds was serving his life sentence, he had confessed to his cellmate John Horn that he had also killed Riley Workman. However, this was not the first confession that Christopher Nuds had made over the years. While he was on remand for Fred Moss's murder, Nuds had confessed to another cellmate, Darren Horner, that he had killed Riley. The story began to unravel back in December 2004, 11 months after Riley was gunned down on his doorstep. Locals in a different village had found themselves coming together to search for a missing man. Triplo, situated about 16 miles from Fernix Pelham, is sprawled across historic land, bridging the former London to Cambridge coaching road. The chain of events began on December 1st when concerned locals of Triplo made calls to the police, reporting the presence of travellers knocking on their doors. They were searching for a 21-year-old man named Fred Moss, who hadn't come home. Fred was a happy, unsuccessful businessman who ran a tarmac company. He loved countryside sports and his dog, a lurcher named Nellie. As part of his job, Fred travelled to farms and building sites, sometimes selling tools from the back of his van. He had recently purchased some land in Chatteris and was planning on building a home. Fred had left his aunt's home in Stansted, Essex on November 30th. He arrived in Cambridgeshire for a hair-coursing expedition with his dog Nellie. Fred never returned home. That night, his friends went out searching for him. They found his loyal lurcher wandering alone in a cereal farm owned by Oliver Walston, a notable farmer and BBC Two broadcaster known for presenting against the grain. Fred's father, Leonard Moss, rushed to the area, accompanied by hundreds of people from the travelling community who wanted to help. Among them was Christopher Nuts. While searching Nuts came across Fred Moss's yellow Vauxhall Astra van on Oliver Walston's farm. Together with police officers and trained sniffer dogs, they cordoned off the area, commencing an extensive search for Fred. The search parties branched out into the surrounding countryside. Superintendent Mick Gipp issued a plea to those who believed they were helping. I would urge those people carrying out their own searches to please stop. They could hinder the police search and make it a longer and slower process for the police search teams. Fred's father responded to this and said that he would continue to search for Fred until he was found. Leonard Moss's commitment to finding his son was unwavering, and he even arranged for a helicopter to scout the vast countryside. And had commented, The dog always finds its way back to Fred. He wouldn't leave him. I don't know what's happened to Fred, but there is no way he wouldn't be in contact. 
This is so out of character. On December 5th, 2004, five days after Fred Moss had disappeared, there was an arrest. Christopher Nutz. He was an acquaintance of Fred's. The pair had met through hair coursing and outdoor sports. He was also the same man who had just so happened to stumble across Fred's van. Nuds had come to the police's attention when they checked Fred's mobile phone records. They discovered that Nuds and Fred had been in contact on the day Fred disappeared and had arranged to meet in the Buntingford area. Following his arrest in connection with the disappearance of Fred Moss, Christopher Nuds was charged with perverting the course of justice. The police weren't sure whether Fred was dead or alive, but they believe Nuds knew something, although he denied he did. During his time in jail, Nuds found himself sharing a cell with Darren Horner, a fellow inmate who was incarcerated for sex offences. One afternoon, Nuds began to divulge the details of his crime to his new cellmate. While he was only charged with perverting the course of justice, Nuds confessed to Darren Horner that he had lured Fred Moss to Highfield Farm in Hertfordshire. There he admitted to shooting him in the head before dismembering his body and incinerating the remains on remote farmland. According to Nuds, he then scattered the ashes. To cover his tracks, Nuds said that he drove Fred's dog Nelly to a spot nine miles away and let him loose so the discovery would divert attention away from the murder site. Nuds elaborated to his cellmate Darren Horner that he had killed Fred Moss because he knew too much about a previous murder he had committed earlier that year. According to Nuds, Fred had been extorting money from him to maintain his silence about the crime. Driven by curiosity, Darren Horner pressed Nuds for further information, prompting him to provide additional details. Nuds told Horner that the other person he had killed was 83-year-old Lieutenant Colonel Robert Riley Workman in January 2004. Nuds explained that he had killed Riley because he threatened to tell the police that Fred Moss was involved in drugs. According to his confession, Nuds then killed Fred Moss because he knew too much about the murder of Riley Workman. Nuds told Darren Horner where he had hidden the murder weapon used to kill Fred Moss, as well as the knife and hacksaw he used to dismember the body. He even offered to pay Horner £15,000 to dispose of the gun. Instead, Horner went to the police with the confession, and they moved him to a different prison. His claims were investigated, and officers found the gun, knife and hacksaw exactly where Horner told them they would be. The gun contained Nudz's DNA, while the knife and hacksaw were stained with Fred Moss's blood. As a result, Christopher Nuds was charged with the murder of Fred Moss. In February 2006, a trial began at Northampton Crown Court. 
The prosecution faced an uphill battle since Fred Moss's body was never recovered. During opening statements, William Harbage QC touched on this, stating, This is an unusual case in that it is a murder where no body has been found. The prosecutor argued that evidence would show that the defendant had lured Fred Moss out to the countryside, having picked the isolated Highfield farm as he had previously been there shooting. In addition to the text messages placing Nuds with Fred, Surveillance footage had captured Fred's van and Nudz's Range Rover together at about 1pm on the way to the farm. Fifteen minutes later, Fred's phone was placed at Highfield Farm, an area made up of isolated arable farmland. The prosecution argued that while there, Fred was shot by Nudz at some point between 3.15pm and 3.57pm. The prosecutor described the case as particularly gruesome, telling the jury how Nuds had dismembered Fred Moss's body and placed his remains in hessian sacks and bin bags before setting them alight. During the murder trial, Darren Horner testified about the confession Nuds had made to him in jail. In a chilling lack of remorse, he said that Nuds told him he had done Fred Moss's loved ones a favour. Horner said that Nuds told him, at least they won't have to buy him a coffin. Darren Horner was allowed to testify about the confession, but couldn't mention Riley Workman. According to the prosecution's narrative, the alleged motive behind Fred Moss's murder was a personal dispute that had transpired. They suggested that Nuds had made unwelcome advances toward Fred, leading to a hostile reaction. However, Nuds' legal counsel vehemently refuted these claims, proposing an alternative theory that suggested Fred Moss's murder was a result of a botched drug deal. During the trial, Christopher Nuds took the stand to testify about his counsel's claim. The defendant first said that Fred Moss was like a brother to him, then claimed that Fred had previously asked him for £10,000 in an earlier drug deal. Nudd's testimony then shifted to the day Fred disappeared. He admitted he was with Fred that day, and that Fred was acting a bit edgy, and not how he usually would. Fred had allegedly asked Nuds to act as a lookout while he carried out a drug deal. The defendant claimed that Fred was driven off in a Mercedes by heroin dealers. Nuds said he expected they had gone elsewhere to complete the deal, but Fred never returned. According to Christopher Nuds, he didn't come forward to the police with this information out of fear he would be incriminated. The jury were presented with compelling evidence, including the revelation of the murder and dismemberment tools, marked with traces of both Fred Moss and Christopher Nudd's DNA. Furthermore, traces of Fred's blood were found within Nudd's Range Rover, a piece of evidence Nudd's tried to explain away by claiming his dog had bitten Fred and drawn blood. Attempting to account for the presence of blood on the hacksaw, 
Nuds argued that he had shown Fred how to butcher a stack. Despite his explanations, the weight of the evidence was incriminating, and Christopher Nuds was found guilty of the murder of Fred Moss. He was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum term of 30 years. Outside of court, Fred's family spoke about their feeling of immense loss, stating, Although justice has been served here today, our lives will be coloured by grief and loss forever. After Christopher Nudd's conviction for the murder of Fred Moss, the killing of Lieutenant Colonel Robert Riley Workman was again examined. While detectives from the Hertfordshire Constabulary were aware of the alleged confession made by Nudd's to Darren Horner, corroborating evidence was missing. Investigators announced an active pursuit of all leads including interviewing Christopher Nudds at HMP Bedford where he was serving a life sentence. Despite their efforts, Nudds vehemently denied any involvement in Riley's murder and refused to speak any further with the police. Their investigation continued without his assistance and in 2007 they received information from a second inmate, John Horn who had been Nudd's cellmate following his conviction. Horn was serving time for assault, and Nudd soon began to divulge information about Riley Workman's murder to him too. According to Nudd's, he and Riley were in a sexual relationship. Nudd's described Riley as wealthy and generous with his money. He further confided to John Horn detailing how he had been given £60,000 by some people from London to shoot Riley. During the conversation, Nudds likened himself to a modern-day hitman. He spoke of an additional murder he had allegedly committed in Australia and revealed that he had spent the proceeds made from killing Riley to acquire a high-end Range Rover. Following this confession, John Horn took his information to the police and the investigation into Riley Workman's murder intensified. While this was ongoing, Christopher Nudds was determined to secure his freedom from prison. In 2009, he launched a campaign from behind bars. He had a lot of supporters and they gathered a £50,000 reward for any information that could overturn his conviction. On a website that was being managed by one of his friends, Nudds claimed that he was only arrested for Fred Moss's murder because he was a, quote, soft target. He also touched on being a person of interest in Riley Workman's murder. On the website, Nudds wrote, They had earlier that year arrested me as well as two others, for the murder of Colonel Riley Workman. These arrests were based on false information and village gossip, and all three of us were released without any charges being brought. There have been various fingers pointed at the police for the inability to solve the Workman case, due to their initial incompetence at allowing the crime scene to be contaminated. 
The solving of the disappearance of Fred Moss was therefore extremely important so as to not make the police look even more incompetent. The two other men he was referring to were Howard Webb and Richard Talks, but the police never released any information about them or their arrests. On the website, Nuds also wrote that Darren Horner had fabricated the entire confession. However, at the time, Nuds was unaware that cellmate John Horn had also divulged his confession to the police as well. Nuds continued writing, Again, no charges were brought as there was no credible evidence. I would like to see Riley's murderer brought to justice so that closure can be brought to that particular case, and it could be proven that I had no involvement in the murder of Riley Workman. That same year, a cold case team was set up to investigate Riley Workman's death. On July 9th, 2010, two years after John Horn came forward with a jailhouse confession, it was announced that Christopher Nuds had been arrested and charged with Lieutenant Colonel Robert Riley Workman's murder. There was no new evidence in the case, and the prosecution relied on the conviction of Fred Moss as well as the evidence from Nuds' former cellmates Darren Horner and John Horn. The case was brought to court after the Crown Prosecution Service was satisfied that there was a reasonable prospect of conviction. In an interview with BBC News, Adrian Roberts, head of the CPS Complex Casework Unit, admitted that jailhouse confessions were not common, but they did happen occasionally and further caution was needed when assessing the evidence. Roberts detailed how some prisoners have a compulsion to talk about their crimes to other inmates. He explained, The only outlet for the turmoil that must exist in their own mind is other prisoners. They rely on them because of their criminal backgrounds not to reveal that information to someone else. But of course, as in this case, they have come unstuck. The murder trial commenced on October 4th, 2012 at St Albans Crown Court. Christopher Nuds had since changed his name to Christopher Doherty Punchin. During his opening statement, Richard Latham QC meticulously recounted the details surrounding Lieutenant Colonel Robert Riley Workman's murder. He said that Nuds, or Doherty Punchin, had knocked on Riley's front door ruthlessly shooting him as it swung open. With conviction, the prosecutor stated, It is a form of execution. The colonel was lying on his back in the hall passageway. The door was wide open, and his foot was hanging over the threshold. Richard Latham QC explained that the defendant had first met Riley in 1998, when he cleared a wasp's nest from Cock House. According to the prosecution, Riley had specifically hired Doherty Punchin to carry out pest control because he found him very good-looking. The two men had engaged in sexual activity, the prosecutor said. 
Richard Latham QC also didn't shy away from Doherty Punchin's prior conviction for the murder of Fred Moss. The prosecutor said, He is a man capable of cold-blooded murder. One can imagine a number of people killing in a temper. It takes a particular person to kill in cold blood, and the allegation is that this is precisely what the killing of Fred Moss was, and indeed what the killing of the Colonel was. Latham did, however, point out that despite the conviction for Fred's murder, the jury were not to assume that this meant Doherty Punchin was guilty of Riley Workman's murder. The prosecutor continued by revealing Doherty Punchin's confessions, including the defendant's admission to a cellmate that he killed Riley Workman because he knew Fred Moss was involved in drugs, and Doherty Punchin killed Fred because he knew too much about the murder of Riley. Richard Latham QC said, The defendant described himself as a modern-day hitman who killed people for money. Later, he claimed he had bought a Range Rover with the money he had been paid to kill Colonel Workman. Anticipating the defence's argument that the two cellmates might be lying, Nathan reassured the jury that other evidence would substantiate their claims. The defence team bluntly denied that Christopher Doherty Punchin had killed Riley Workman. They pointed to another person of interest they argued the police had overlooked. Josette Swanson, Riley's carer. It was revealed that Riley had given her money, brought her a mobile phone and even included her in his will shortly before he was killed. Josette was completely unaware of this development until the police informed her. When she testified, defence barrister James Wood QC asked her, After it became clear he had been shot, you said to the paramedic, I hope nobody thinks I did it. Josette replied, Maybe I did in shock, but I know damn well I didn't. I may be a farmer's daughter, but I don't own a gun. According to Josette Swanson, Riley had a tormented mind. She agreed that at first he had asked specifically for Christopher Nuts, a man now known as Christopher Doherty Punchin, to deal with a wasp's nest. But later something changed. Shortly before his murder, Riley was worried about a rat problem at the house, but he said he didn't want to use Doherty Punchin's services again. Among the first witnesses to testify was Gary Chambers, who spoke about seeing a Range Rover in Phoenix Pelham after the murder with part of the number plate reading Soho. That night, Gary said he was getting his son ready for bed when he heard the bang of a shotgun. Sometime later, he had driven to visit his parents in Buntingford, and on the way he stopped to get petrol from a garage on the A10. He produced a receipt that showed the transaction was timed at 9.31pm. Harry testified that shortly before this he had been driving in Phoenix Pelham along a country lane when he stopped to let another vehicle pass. He recollected, It wasn't coming particularly fast and the vehicle came into my view. 
he drove past slowly with dipped headlights. As it got closer, Gary Chambers could see it was a Range Rover P38, with a number plate that spelt out what looked like Soho. Gary recounted that he had seen the vehicle before, both in Stocking Pelham and Furnix Pelham. The next witness to be called to testify was Peter Ward, Christopher Doherty Punchin's uncle. He told the jury that he had seen a sawn-off shotgun under the seat of his nephew's car some time before the shooting. The jury also heard from Darren Horner, who spoke about the confession the defendant had made in a jail cell. During cross-examination, defence barrister James Wood QC claimed that at no stage did his client make the admission. Wood suggested that the witness's evidence was complete fantasy, but Horner replied, You can say what you like. That said, it was then highlighted by the defence that Darren Horner had a two-year reduction in his sentence for divulging the confession to the police and providing evidence. Much like Horner, John Horn also testified about the confession Doherty Punchin had made to him in prison. Taking the stand during the murder trial, Christopher Doherty Punchin refuted his uncle's testimony as well as the jail cell confessions. He argued that his vehicle at the time didn't have the kind of seats that were described by his uncle. The defendant went on to deny any involvement in Riley Workman's murder and rejected any insinuation of a sexual relationship between them. He maintained that he had never even been inside Riley's cottage, having only done work in the garden. Doherty Punchin argued that the claims were the product of village gossip. In a calm demeanour, he said, It was like midsummer murders. Because they knew I had been arrested, they used to make stupid jokes like he must be your sugar daddy. I think it came about by people suggesting I'd had a sexual relationship with him. Providing his account of the day Riley Workman was killed, Doherty Punchin asserted he had collected two friends from Heathrow Airport following their honeymoon in South Africa. He said he drove them to their home in Norfolk before travelling back to Stocking Pallam. Later in the afternoon, he claimed he walked his dogs on a farm at Great Hormeat, having taken them there in his Range Rover. On the way back from their walk, he said he stopped in Furnix Pallam to remove his jacket. He asserted that he had been home by 6pm and hadn't left again. Defence barrister James Wood QC asked Doherty Punchin whether he had driven past Gary Chambers while returning home. The defendant responded, I couldn't have done because I was at home. However, Doherty Punchin's alibi for that night was refuted not only by Gary Chambers, who had seen his car in Furnix Pelham, but also by the defendant's phone records. While he maintained he was at home all night, Doherty Punchin had called his answering machine to check for any messages around two hours after gunshots were heard by neighbours. 
as the prosecutor said. You don't need to ring your answer phone to check for messages if you have the answer phone right in front of you. It was clear he was not at home. On November 6, 2012, the trial came to a close. Before the jury of six men and six women were sent off to deliberate, the judge, Mr Justice Saunders, warned them that they must treat the alleged confessions with considerable caution. He explained that the witnesses who provided jailhouse confessions could get reduced sentences or financial rewards for giving evidence. Mr Justice Saunders also told the jury, You are not entitled to say because the defendant killed Fred Moss, he must have killed Colonel Workman. Jurors deliberated for 17 hours before returning with a verdict. Christopher Doherty Punchin was emotionless, staring straight ahead. He was found guilty of the murder of Lieutenant Colonel Robert Riley Workman. Sentencing was scheduled for the following day, and Christopher Doherty Punchin knew he would be receiving an automatic life sentence for murder. Mr Justice Saunders referred to Doherty Punchin as an exceptionally dangerous man. The judge then touched on the mystery behind the motive. I cannot say for certain what the reason for the attack was. Maybe we will never know. Christopher Doherty Punchin was told he would have to serve a minimum term of 32 years before he could be considered for parole. The people of Phoenix Pelham weren't prepared for a brutal murder as they passed their mostly peaceful days in this quiet corner of Hertfordshire. They knew almost immediately how the colonel had died. It would take another six years to prove who had killed him here at his cottage. We did pledge to the family we'd never give up, and we didn't. And finally, we got the evidence to mount a prosecution. The court heard that the atmosphere in the village was similar to an episode of Midsummer Murders. But this was a rural murder mystery that would take years to resolve. And as to why, well, they may never know. The judge said that numerous explanations had been given. None of them proved to his satisfaction. So where are we now? In October 2013, Christopher Doherty Punchin appealed his conviction and sentence for Riley Workman's murder. His barrister James Wood QC told the Court of Appeal that the conviction was arguably unsafe and that the 32-year minimum term was too long. According to the defence, the judge for Riley Workman's murder trial did not properly direct the jury on how to consider the jailhouse confessions. James Wood QC revealed that when Darren Horner first told the police about the confession... He gave a detailed account of Fred Moss's murder, but provided very little information about Riley's murder. He added more details ten weeks later, after he was moved to another prison. According to Wood, some of these details were incorrect, and may have been gleaned from reports in the media. 
He also alleged that Darren Horner's account was inconsistent with the evidence provided by Doherty Punch and cellmate John Horn. Furthermore, unknown to Doherty Punch and or his counsel, towards the end of his trial for the murder of Fred Moss, Horner was approached by a former police officer turned journalist Peter Blexley, who taped Horner giving false information and demanding money. James Wood QC would also claim that the 32-year minimum term handed to his client was too long, because Doherty Punchin had already served eight years for the murder of Fred Moss. According to the barrister, 40 years was excessive due to the time that had passed between the sets of legal proceedings. Sir Brian Leveson, who was sitting with Mr Justice Royce and Mr Justice Popplewell, highlighted that the murder was committed with the use of a firearm against a vulnerable victim with no mitigating circumstances, so the sentence could not be criticised. As for the appeal against the conviction, Sir Brian Leveson ruled, The task of the jury in this case was to assess what they made of two men, Horner and Horn, alongside the other circumstantial evidence contrasted with the evidence of the appellant and whether in the light of all the evidence, they were sure the appellant was guilty of murder. In our judgment, the approach of the learned judge to this evidence is beyond proper challenge. Sir Brian added, We don't accept that this sentence is either wrong in principle or manifestly excessive. The application for leave to appeal against sentence is also refused. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our patrons for their support. For more information on this episode... Please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.